1: Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As we do every Monday, we check in with one of the brightest political and foreign policy minds I've been privileged to uh, get to know over the last several years, and that's Brandon Weikert. His most recent book is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and uh, he's working on a new book on the nuclear threat um, that that faces uh, the free world. We'll talk a little bit about that, too. Uh, I want to do a little politics and a little foreign policy with Brandon, as always. How was your weekend, Brandon? Welcome back.
2: How you doing? Uh, my weekend was a blur because I was uh, knee-deep in research, pulling all-nighters for the uh, uh, chunk of my book. Most of it's dedicated to understanding Iran. So I was uh, pretty much informing myself about things I never thought I'd need to know and ended up uh, going down a path of uh, I'm going after the resource curse uh, narrative uh, in which Marxist theorists in the West have convinced us that all of the problems of the world are Britain and America's fault, notably those in the Middle East. And I ended up creating a whole new chapter just sort of ripping that that narrative to shreds.
1: Brandon, that's so true. There's a weird axis that a lot of people have had a hard time putting their finger on and it is uh i guess Zudi jasser calls it the uh what is he call the red green axis others do as well yes. but there yes. is this um this axis this marxist um islamist axis you want to talk a little bit about it because it doesn't at first blush make a lot of sense that you would have it makes no sense right a the a theocratic yes. movement wedded to a to an ideology that proclaims there's no God, but but there there there's a, there are some connections. You want to talk a little bit about it? It's, uh, yeah. I hadn't even yeah, dawned I'll on be, me to think about. Yeah, that. well, Good.
2: I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to take us. I love idea, it. I Let's it do it. Course, but,
1: We're gonna have to uh, know it.
2: Yeah, so, yeah. Well, so basically, and this is all just for me, kind of deep diving into the whole thing. And of course, we've all heard the resource curse that basically uh, a developing country uh, finds out it has a commodity like usually oil. Uh, and so everybody thinks that's a good thing for the country, because then it will allow them to make money and then re- reinvest that money and, you know, build out modern society from there. And then the curse part is they become so dependent on that industry that once the particularly oil prices start sort of to fluctuate, uh, uh, they basically can't sustain political stability or economic growth over the long term. And then they're also subject to predation by uh, foreign powers that need that commodity uh... and uh, this is a this is an incorrect theory uh... i was reading up a a guy an old timer who's now long dead from harvard and i can't remember his name now but he was an iran specialist and about ten years ago he was in a documentary saying you know the the colonialism wasn't great for the middle east for instance but in iran there there is no curse of oil they were the shah was able to take that oil money, even if it wasn't the full amount that others thought he was entitled to, he was able to take that money and reinvest it in education, reinvest it in anti poverty measures, reinvested in infrastructure. That really made Iran a modern country as we understand it. And then once he was removed by the Islamists, everything kind of stopped. And I think it's interesting that Uh, You know, oil is – we now know there's more oil in Iran today than there was – we know about more oil than we did even 50 years ago when the Shah was running it. Yet the Islamists running Iran are so backward, they can't harvest that oil the way that the Shah was – with one-tenth of what we know is in Iran today, the Shah was able to to harvest that energy – And send it uh, abroad and make money. Was it because of the
1: use, the lack of fear about other, uh, 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 well, Great Britain and the United States? Let's say, and and technology and, and 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 expertise and people from America and and France and Great Britain who would go there to work.
2: Yeah, it was because of that. I mean, let's face it, there would be no oil industry in Iran if the British hadn't discovered oil there right. in 1908, because the British already knew what to do with it. Right. The Iranians had no idea what to do with it. And so all of this leads into the sort of red-green access that that we were talking about, wherein now you have these academics and these liberal theorists in America and the West saying that, oh, uh, you know, the, the, the poor people of, of, let's in this case say Iran, were so benighted, and they were so abused and tormented by these agents of the West, and the West was so predatory, uh, and, and colonialism was so bad, only, uh, you know, indigenous movements like so the Islamist movement could save those people because it was reflective of the will of the Iranians. Well, in fact, as we've seen, it's been a disaster. And then you have, the, it's a weird combination because obviously these Marxist theorists, they don't believe in God at all. They have the 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 Islamists have more to hate in the in the in the left than they should in the in our own capitalist or conservative sort of Western systems. But um, they've created an alliance because at the end of the day, the 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 red side of the aisle, the 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 Marxist side, the left in the west. Uh, they want to destroy and weaken American power and, and economic might. And guess what? The Islamists the world over want to do the same thing. Right. So they have a shared enemy in the United that, States. That
1: That's where the axis begins. Exactly right. So if America is an ally with a leader and some other movement takes out that leader – that's a good thing without asking any further questions yep. for the exactly. reason one and only what first reason of most import, which is that America couldn't possibly have been an ally with or a financial or otherwise military supporter or defender of some other regime. So we get um, another expert, my favorite one, and certainly you've come across it in your research, if not happy to send it to you, was this this now, I think, famous uh piece in the New York Times in 1979 from a Princeton professor named Richard Falk, which is all about trusting Khomeini and sentences like yes. the depiction of Khomeini is fanat. I'm reading it now. The depiction of Khomeini fanatical, reactionary, and the bearer of crude prejudices is certainly and happily false. He writes that yes. in 1979. Perfect. Yes. This yes. is this is the kind of scholarship you got from Princeton. It's the kind of scholarship you still get from Princeton. You're getting
2: from everywhere. And and this is, this is one of the biggest bugaboos of mine, particularly when I, you know, I studied a lot of the Middle East in my master's program. It wasn't my main area, but I, I kind of had to know what was going on as it affected not only the U.S., but Russia and China as well. That was obviously one of my, my geopolitical areas is Eurasia. So Middle East falls into that. But what I found in my experience studying the Middle East is that Middle East scholars, most of them are really, are really beholden to this very pathetic Marxist sort of interpretation yes. of, of Middle Eastern history. Right. And it's actually very offensive when you think about it, because basically they're saying that until the West came along, the Middle East societies had no agency. That's they right. were just these That's right. It's really offensive when you think about it, because when you look at the history of Iran or the Sunni Muslim world, there was a long and rich and very violent, by the way, and imperial history that had nothing to do with, with the Europeans, had nothing to do with, well, obviously, eventually the Americans. Right. If any foreign actor had a major influence over that area, it was actually the Russian Empire under the Tsars, and then later the Soviets. It wasn't the West. Uh, and so there, there's this really sort of just stupidity. It's it's kind of a pop cultural phenomenon that's dominated a passing fad that's dominated uh, Middle East scholarship. And it's really, I think, degraded the whole business of Middle Eastern scholarship, at least in the West.
1: I think that's right. And I think it start. I, I can't put my finger on where it started, but it got a big boost with Edward Said and his thesis Absolutely. of Orientalism in the late 70s. That's when yep. things started to turn more and more and why with great reason the counter um the 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 counterpoise the other side of that sword to edward said was gene kirkpatrick who 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 famously right. proclaimed that this is the, the center of of the of their outlook is to simply blame america first once you do That's that right. you become a scholar once you That's do right. that and then, right
2: and and then when it comes to edward said whose whole thing was you know, don't impose your Western right. your Western interpretation of history. Yet his entire scholarship is all about basically blaming America and the West. Right? It's the weirdest. It's When I read him, he's right to say it's more than just the West. But then his conclusion is always it's the West's fault right. or, you know, the the backward state, if you'll pardon the expression, the backward state of the Middle East today. Everything goes back to the West. Even as he's pre, 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 uh, sort of before that, he's writing about, how you know, the West tends to impose its its own interpretation, its world view on Middle Eastern scholarship. I don't understand how his conclusions then are that at the end of the day it's really the West's fault for all the ills of the Middle East. Well it's I very, I think I think Iran so is a
1: great test case for this, just the way the Department of Education is a great test case for yes. education. They both got new leadership and founding around the same time. Has the country and has the state of education improved since? Let me come back on that point with you, Brandon, (laughs) when I do come back. I want to do some politics with you, too. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Brandon Weicker. Happy to take your calls as well. 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show. Brandon Weikert, publisher of the Weikert Report, author of um, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, is our guest. He's working on a book primarily dealing with the Middle East, and we're going to get to some uh, domestic politics in a bit, too. But, uh, Brandon, you had tweeted uh, yesterday that Joe Biden, um, the president of the United States, will face several <laughs> systemic problems. Um Probably more importantly than every president since the 1990s has inherited, and I want to get to some of that with you. But before we do, and maybe we're on our way to getting there, we mentioned Iran. We'll come back. Iran. will come back to it. I also want to talk to you about this um, enigma wrapped in a in a in a in a riddle called Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, because um, yeah, just. As over the last kind of several weeks, a lot of eyebrows have raised over what seemed to be a thawing of um, of ice, Uh, particularly, I suppose, from one camp in Saudi Arabia with Israel. Uh, I woke up this morning to a story of um, one of the more prominent members of the royal family, Turkey bin Faisal. I remember when he was our I think he was ambassador. Yeah, I think he was ambassador in D.C. for a while when I was there. Uh, saying some, um, some ridiculously crazy, insane things about Israel. Can you help shed some light on what's going on?
2: Yeah, so basically um, everything that's happening right now in the Middle East is because there's a clearly a new regime taking over in the United States. And if you understand that, it, particularly in generally the Middle East, in Iran as well, but particularly in the Sunni Arab world, and our friend Lee Smith wrote about this in his 2011 book, uh, it was called A Stronger Horse. Yep. Uh, basically, the, 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 the region is dominated still by this sort of tribal, uh, you know, whoever's the bigger horse, uh, will lead the way. And they go very much off of very cold, calculating, uh, power politics. And so, Whereas until the last few months, the Saudis in particular were amenable to normalizing relations with Israel, engaging in these Abraham Accords that Kushner and Trump uh, really sort of pushed through, uh, all as a means of linking the Sunni Arab world with Israel to contain uh, the, uh, Iran's rise. Well, now that it's very clear, uh, to the rest of the world at least, that that uh, Joe Biden is the president-elect and he will be taking over uh, now it's sort of like hitting the reset button. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about how our enemies are going to test the new administration uh, whether it be China or Iran but our, our so-called allies will as well mm-hmm. and we see this now with Saudi Arabia where basically they're sort of uh, getting out of getting out of the water now they were dumping it they were getting ready to wade into the pool that was peace and now they're saying oh there's a new person running the show in America. America's our most important ally. Let's see what we can let's see what we can get out of him. Uh, because before it was pretty much Trump and Kushner forcing the Sunni Arab world to do America's bidding without question. Well now that Trump's gone, their feet's no longer held to the fire, if I can mix metaphors. Uh, their their feet are no longer feet no longer being held to the fire. So they're gonna be able to do what they want. And let's just face it, traditionally, uh, notably the Sunni Arab world, probably even more so than the Iranians. Uh, the Saudi Arab world has never been sanguine about a Jewish democracy in the Levant known as Israel. They've always wanted it gone. And so anything they can do to damage Israel's standing uh, without losing America's partnership, that's going to happen. And I think it's very telling also that the one foreign policy achievement that the uh, former Obama foreign policy staffer, who's now apparently advising the Biden team, has said— uh, he said, actually, Joe Biden is the only thing he looks favorably on for the Trump years is actually the Abraham Accords. And the, but then he followed that statement up in the uh, political or in Axios with, by saying, and so we're going to take the Abraham Accords, which linked all the Sunni Arab states together as one, and we're going to rechannel that effort into creating uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace. That is not what the Abraham Accords were, Accords were designed to be. They purposely ignored the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in order to face the larger conflict of Iran's threat to the region and, by extension, the United States. So Biden's going to basically, even as he's paying lip service to the Abraham Accords, he's going to let the Saudis basically destroy those accords by, you know, damaging Israel's security again.
1: Yeah. Well, so there's going to be obviously a flexing of, of certain muscles and tri- tribes. You use that phrase tribes, and it reminds me there was an Egyptian some years ago who said outside of Egypt, how did he put it? Outside of Egypt, there are no Arab nation states. There are just tribes with flags. <laughs> Do you remember that? You know what I'm talking about? I
2: yeah, I don't know who said it. Yeah, it was I some Egyptian was, diplomat.
1: Yeah. Outside of Egypt, there yeah. are no Middle Eastern countries, it's just tribes Egyptian with flags. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> of course, that was back probably born from a time when Egypt thought it was going to run the Pan-Arabic uh The pan Arab movement. Um, Yeah. Right. Under Nasser. I guess he was probably a Nasserite would be my guess. But having said all that. So there does tend to always be a foreign policy test of an incoming president. And if we assume Joe Biden is the next president guessing where that test is is always worrisome. I I did you ever read I, I thought it was a great book whatever you think of him Don Rumsfeld's autobiography and, and he put, Oh, of course. right? He of said course. something really interesting. Yeah, I know
2: I knew Rumsfeld. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, he, said and many times and yeah. Yeah, he said something Yeah, he said something really interesting. He said when Dick Cheney had his Secretary of Defense confirmation hearings in um 19 uh, what would it have been? 1989 Um, He was asked zero questions about Iraq. And when Don Rumsfeld had his in 2001, 2001. he had zero questions about Afghanistan. So you never this this is this has always intrigued me because we do get new presidents who get tested all the time.
2: Yes. And usually uh, if you're if they're prepared at all, they're prepared for the last war. Right and rarely are they ready to face the real challenge of their time, whatever it may be. Um, and uh, remember, remember, FDR in today's Pearl Harbor Day. Right. Remember, FDR was fixated on the German threat. Right, he thought that the Japanese threat was a joke. He thought we could handle them, no problem. Uh, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Don't worry about it. They can't send their forces to Pearl Harbor. Too technologically difficult for them focus on the Germans, focus on helping the Brits. And what happened was we were deploying our Pacific fleet. We were sending a lot of assets over to the Atlantic fleet. And um, we ended up, you know, we ended up getting caught unawares, not because of that, but one that is one of the reasons. Uh, but um, uh, FDR was prepared to fight World War One basically, which was, of course, the German threat back then. He wasn't anticipating a new threat, a more dynamic threat to American interests, frankly, than Germany was. Uh, not that Germany was something we shouldn't have dealt with, but I'm just saying, in terms of the direct threat to American interests, it was definitely Japan. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, every president is, is prepared to fight the last war, and you could even make the case that George W. Bush forced us into Iraq because he was so fixated on his father's war in Iraq. Right. And, um, you know, but...
1: Right that's, and that's and and are. it's always the stories that 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 don't get enough attention you know um the USS Cole happened in between administrations no one yep. paid much attention to it pan am yep. uh, was it 103 i believe same yep. thing we didn't pay Think enough about
2: attention. about space today. Nobody's talking about exactly. space. You know, it's exactly. It's going to be the big Exactly,
1: and China and space. Let's talk about yeah. all of that. I still want to get your yeah. thoughts on Georgia when we come back. Brandon Weikert is our guest. Winning Space is his book, How America Remains a Superpower God. Please may it be so. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. A little over a year ago, I started taking as I was promoting Balance of Nature. I got to tell you, it's one product I don't know what I'd do without. I just don't. It's kept me in fine fettle for well over a year, as well as friends now, too. It boosts your energy. It improves your health. It boosts your immunity. It's everything you would want, especially in the wintertime, especially with all these viruses flying around. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients from 100% whole food plants, fruits, and vegetables in one daily dose. Haven't been sick all year, despite international travel, despite usually getting sick every time the seasons change. They're offering free shipping, great deal, and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800 246 eight751 or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. We're talking to Brandon Weicker about foreign policy challenges. And uh, one, one of the things, uh, Brandon, you tweeted uh, here is – I'll just read it. Biden will face several systemic problems that he will inherit, but more importantly, that every president since the 90s has inherited. I suspect that he will find those problems as insurmountable as the previous previous administrations have, regardless of ideology. The the interesting thing is, um, you know, it's funny what presidents are Known for after they leave office. Nixon was known as right. a foreign policy president and did a lot on foreign policy. Probably his domestic policies have longer lasting consequences in some respects. Uh, Reagan was yeah. a governor who probably had more lasting foreign policy uh, legacy uh, in some respects. We can play this game a while. Trump, as it turns out, had a pretty big defense and foreign policy legacy, no? Yes.
2: Yes. Which is ironic, of course. Yeah. Because he didn't really campaign. I mean, he campaigned that I'm gonna. I love the generals, and and I, you know, I he he campaigned as I'm gonna be strong for the military, blah blah blah. But it was sort of this passe or kind of blasé uh, blanket attitude toward defense. He never really got into specifics. But one area he always got into specifics, and I'm happy to say I had a very small role in that uh, was space dominance and the space force. But aside from that. Uh, you're right. He was domestic. I mean, the most foreign policy he talked about uh, that was maybe how he hated the Iran deal and then everything else. NATO, NATO paying
1: its fair share and China. Yeah, and the reason I yeah, say that and, and I, yeah. I only add that you you correct me where I only add that is he was re uh, how do I put this re, re, um, refocusing American foreign policy under an America first banner or umbrella or thesis that we're going to do what's good for us. We are a superpower and the world will come our way. It's enough of us going the world's way. They Correct. got that. They complied. And we weren't taken advantage of the way others have taken advantage right. of us. And I think that's, that's right. the lesson that I think um, too many forget. Yeah, go ahead. No, that's all. No, no, you're right. And,
2: and I, I think, um, you know, there were elements of Trump's rhetoric that unfortunately were not followed through. Uh, Our friend David Goldman writes under the name of Spangler at Asia Times, talks about how, you know, our trade deficit, unfortunately, remained unchanged from the time Trump took office until this week. It hasn't gotten better, Um, you know, but still he Trump's rhetoric on certain issues. It really forced, for instance, NATO. It forced NATO to spend more. It forced the NATO members to do more than they ordinarily would have. Uh, you know, it it forced, uh, like, like we were talking about before the break, it forced um, uh, the Middle Eastern countries to actually try to work better, closer with uh, Israel to contain Iran before they weren't. And now that Trump's gone, unfortunately, it looks like everybody's starting to go their own way again. But that that is a fact, is that he spoke forcefully and unapologetically uh, for American greatness, And um, I think most of the world, even if they snickered and sneered at him, most of the world knew here was a forceful advocate for America, and they weren't going to push him too far.
1: See, I think that's what bothers the Democrats so much, Brandon. It is. I think they want us to be France. I really do. do. I think they think France is more sophisticated and important than we are. I think they think that. I think John Kerry thinks that. I think Joe Biden thinks that. I think the entire – Foreign policy establishment of the Democratic Party thinks that, and maybe 25 to 30% of the Republican Party. Can we come back on that thought after this break? Absolutely. I'd love to. I'll be right back with Brandon Weicker. By the way, if you're into uh, into the uh, real estate market and you're thinking of selling or buying your home, I want you to check out my friend James Wexler of JMG Real Estate. He has a proprietary and state-of-the-art marketing technology. He has a private database. He guarantees to sell your home at market value, or he will pay you the difference for. Maximum convenience. He can always make you, he can also make you an upfront guaranteed offer within a day of you reaching out to him. Of course, no risk to you. He'll always let you out of your contract at any time. Visit James Wexler online at jameswexler.com. That's James Wexler, W-E-X-L-E-R.com or call him at 480-386-0711. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert, our guest, publisher of The Weikert Report, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T, and uh, also author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Why, why, Brandon, is there this um, European um, tug at uh, the liberal left in America? Why is it that uh, foreign policy <coughs> seems to always have to be in deference to uh, European organizations and European countries over and against and first our own. It's got to be a deep ideological insight to hatred of one's own to begin with, I think. Or is it just a pseudo sophistication of some order or another? Why, why do you if I'm right? Why, why do you think that's true?
2: I think you are right. And I think it's a little bit of all of the above. And the reason is it really gets back to the post-war structure of Europe. What is Europe? It is a highly bureaucratized, especially the European Union, it is a highly bureaucratized entity where only the elite, well-connected, have any real influence. The, the central governments of Europe highly tax their citizenry. They highly regulate their, their industry. Um, they, they have robust welfare programs for, you know, everything. And they don't really have any military to speak of because they spend all of their money on their social programs while deferring to the Americans for defense. That's the part the left never understands here in the United States, is that usually the Europeans can have these these programs, partly because of the culture over there. They're, they've always been more centralized than we in the United States have been, but also because the United States, since the Cold War, has subsidized the European defense. Um, and um, you know, and 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 the the left looks at that and they go, oh gosh, that's what we wanted here. We have we want to have central authority. We want to have ourselves as the preeminent leaders because we're the most informed. We're the best educated. We're the, the the beautiful people, not these grubby deplorables. You know that that's that's sort of the it's a cultural thing. Uh, it's a it's a it's a government thing where they want central government to have greater influence. And it's the fact that they don't want to see private sector basically allowed to survive and, uh, you know, thrive without government assistance or intervention.
1: The weird part about it is if you look through history, ours or Europe's, we really didn't start wars, and they did. And, 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 And yet, for some reason, the leftist tug in America believes were the criminal.
2: Yeah, well that that goes back to the that goes back to sort of the um, that goes back to sort of the the turn of the century rise of progressivism, uh, Wilsonianism, and then it was put into hyperdrive uh, after the by the time of the nineteen sixties, as we talked about at the start of sure. the program. Sure. Uh, you know, where all of these kind of these Gramscian. The uh, Marxist uh, uh, Frankfurt School of Cultural Marxism became mainstreamed in the United States. And, uh, and so that, that sort of empowered these leftists today who went through the education system back then and kind of t- absorbed these ideas, uh, you know, very rapidly. And now you, you have our culture today and our political system looking the way it does because of these really bad ideas and faulty notions that were imposed from Marxist leftists from Europe, and now it's it's sort of become part of the, the landscape here, and I don't know how we get rid of it.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way to <coughs> phrase it, these, these ideologies that came here from Europe, which are at center, or at base, a neglect of... You're a Claremont fellow, aren't you? Uh, they're, they're, no, no, that,
2: I'm just I, I just know a lot of those. Okay,
1: ones. but but th- that are at, at at daggers drawn against an American ideology, right? We actually have right. uh, uh, our if you take our founding seriously, there is an ideology to be found there, and the European theories, whether it's Marxism or fascism, are directly opposed to it, and yet we kind of think equality and liberty should be ideals of the left, if not liberty, at least American-style equality, but they've never granted that while they look and gaze to Europe as no, the answer, no. which has never been able uh, to achieve you're it. You're
2: correct. Yeah, you're correct. And and the problem with the left is that their version of equality, is it, it may be um, a balance between races, but it certainly isn't balanced between, say, those they believe disproportionately benefited under the old system. So instead of it being true equality where everyone has an equal shot at opportunity, what it really becomes is sort of this retributive, uh, you know, justice theory where, uh, the government has to punish, you know, white people, heterosexual people, you, you know, Republicans, conservative, Christian types, uh, you know, even, even traditional Jews, uh, they have to be punished. Because somehow they are not only thought criminals to the left today, but they're also uh, you success know, they're, they're, stories. Their success yeah, stories. His, yeah, history. Yes. Yeah.
1: Success and their
2: histories. Their histories. You know, the, the history was they were they were bad in history, so they have to be punished today.
1: Right, and that's why I think Margaret Thatcher was such an outlier. She was such an outlier because she intuitively understood this. She said Frederick Hayek's Constitution of Liberty was the platform for the Conservative Party in England. And that famous line of hers just couldn't be truer of the left there then or the left here today, which was they're not interested in making the poor richer, they're interested in making the rich poorer. I thought there was a world of wisdom in that.
2: It's a great quote, and as she also said, the United States philosophically or politically is about 20 years behind Great Britain, and you can see that coming true today as we become we begin to look a lot like Britain did in the late 1970s, early 80s, yeah. before her reforms could be enacted. But also fundamentally, though, I disagree with that on one level. Okay. Because because really, if you look at the left, whether it be here or in Europe or the, the, the Communist Party in, in Russia when the Soviet Union existed or the Communists in China, it's always the leftists. It's always they who somehow manage to remain rich while everybody else is poor. It's always the well-connected who tend to be leftists who manage to survive in most cases and live pretty high off the hog as long as they swear filthy to the party. Uh, You know, they they manage to do well. I mean, look how many billionaires today are are Democrats, are proud Democrats. Look
1: look, look at Hollywood allowing to have outdoor dining when – you know, um, <laughs> right. When it's when disgusting. Angela, when right. Angela cannot. Yeah, I get it. Right. I, right. Or right. Nancy Pelosi can have her hair done and no one else can. Or Governor Newsom right. can go to French right. laundry and no one else can. Oh, I take the point, Brandon. This was a good tour, buddy. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> it I do there's it. never a shortage of things to talk. Brandon Weicker. His book is Winning Space. How America Remains a Superpower. We await on tenterhooks for his next one. Brandon. God bless you. thank you Godspeed.
2: God bless you We'll Have talk to you day. soon.
1: Bye-bye. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero Paul is going join us in the next hour. Dave in surprise haven't heard from him let's go to Dave real quick. Hi Dave. How
0: you doing teacher? Good I'm good. well. How are you? Oh, I'm very blessed. They keep us so busy, don't they? Yes, they—they
1: they want us that way. They want us in a chaos.
0: They do. Well, and and I said that months ago on my Twitter handle that Operation Chaos was in full effect. Yeah, um, you bet. I, I'm a little confused. I I apologize. I haven't been able to, to be online. I haven't listened to much Salem the last few months since uh, the election because I've been downtown doing meetings and protests and whatever. Um, But I'm confused when I hear conservatives or people on talk radio giving up on the election, because I think Bush v. Gore was 37 days and waited until the Supreme Court. Did the Democrats ever concede any ground?
1: Not during that 37 days they didn't.
0: Then then why do we do it on the messaging side? I'm very confused by this.
1: So what I've been saying uh, is the putative Biden presidency I don't think I've ever said Biden presidency without putting the word putative in front of it putative means uh supposed or commonly understood um which I think is a fair description you tell me if I'm not I think it's 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 supposedly a Biden presidency that will happen next or at least it seems to be commonly understood that it's a Biden presidency that could happen next But anything could happen, and there are still a few lawsuits out there that could go somewhere. But I think if you were a betting man, would you bet that Trump's the next president of the United States or Biden?
0: I think he's the current president, and I don't think that'll change until 2025.
1: Really? Okay. All right. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And that's why I say putative, Biden, because I think there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered. A lot. A lot.
0: And I think the challenge is, and and they played this right, and and we've talked forever that compassionate conservative doesn't work, and I think the GOP is, in essence, a weak organization. That's why Trump took it over so easily. Um, And I don't think he's really a Republican. I think he's just our titular head. But the fact of the matter is that the the challenge will be to prove fraud, Um, and and that's unfortunate that – we're so on the defensive all the time.
1: Sure. Yeah, all the time, all the time. There's no question. It's harder to be a conservative because you constantly have to be <coughs> correcting the common narrative. And take a look at that Media Research Center poll I keep going back to of voters, exit polls from swing states. Huge percentages of people who said if they had heard X, Y or Z story about Biden, the kinds of stories we have been talking about from the Hunter Biden laptop scandal to um, uh, Tara Reid, there were about five different stories that if they had heard about him, they would have voted differently. They didn't hear about him. That combined with the libertarian candidates, big problems for us, makes us work harder. I'd like to get to a point where we work easier.